we tend to trust people who are in positions of power or who have jobs that are service-oriented, like a doctor, a pastor, or a therapist. Amy Nordhues trusted her therapist. Everyone in her community loved him. Her friends raved about him. He was even an elder at the church she was attending. Amy didn't know it, but he was also very, very dangerous. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. We're going to dive into another story from the world of true crime and then see what spiritual and safety takeaways we can find there. I believe that it is every Christian's calling to be what I call a different kind of PI, a person of impact. It's so much easier to do than you might think. And we'll talk about a way that you can be a PI for someone this week. This is season four, episode 15. The book that we're going to talk about this week is Preyed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. And our guest is its author, Amy Nortutz. I do want to caution everyone that while we won't be getting graphic or explicit, we are going to be discussing sexual abuse and abuse by a trusted therapist. Please use your discretion about whether this is a healthy episode for you. This is a tough topic, but I think it's a very, very important one. Once you're done listening to this episode, I hope that one of your takeaways is going to be to trust yourself more and trust fancy titles less. People really need to earn our trust, and they do that when they behave with good character, especially those people who are supposed to be helping us when we're at our most vulnerable. Amy Nordhues trusted someone who was supposed to help her deal with her feelings of worthlessness due to a history of past sexual abuse. Instead, He used those vulnerabilities for his own twisted purposes. What began as a simple search for a doctor to monitor the antidepressants that Amy was taking ended up with that psychiatrist in jail and Amy sharing this story so that she could help others who found themselves in similar situations. Amy started a lengthy counseling relationship with this man hoping that all of the hurt and anger she'd struggled with for so many years could heal as she started to deepen her relationship with God. Amy had no way of knowing that he had spent years fine-tuning his techniques to make her and others accept behaviors from him that she wouldn't accept from anybody else. The abuse that she'd suffered in her past had left her feeling that men would only love her when they got what they wanted from her physically. And this doctor was no different. He was making her feel safe for the first time in a long time. He bought her a special blanket to wrap up in during their therapy sessions, and he got her special candies that he saved just for her. He didn't share them with any other patients, or at least that's what he told her. He told Amy that she was so special to Jesus and that Jesus wanted to love her through him. Now, if you ever have anybody in your life tell you that ever, take a step back and reevaluate what their motives might be. It wasn't long before this doctor extended Amy's typical one-hour sessions to two hours, and that did seem strange to her at first, but she felt like it was going to help her and that that was just a way that God was really blessing her in this season of her life. She felt comfortable enough to rest her feet on an ottoman during their sessions. He'd been offering that for months, and once she did take him up on it, He then began to put his feet up next to hers. It seemed a bit odd, but comforting at the same time. 
It seemed like just an innocent show of affection. It was anything but innocent. And I want us all to realize that that is one of the ways that sexual predators will draw in their victims. They're so patient, probably because they've got other victims at various stages, this testing process. Next came putting the special blanket over both of them instead of just Amy. Then he wanted to give her foot rubs. He told her when he could sense her discomfort that she should remember that Jesus was affectionate with his apostles. There again, he's almost laying a guilt trip on her for trying to put up boundaries. That is definitely a red flag. During one of their sessions, he even convinced Amy that she had seen what he said must be one of Jesus's personal angels. And she was thrilled. Of course, who wouldn't be? And she mentioned how she couldn't wait to tell her pastor, their pastor. Suddenly, the doctor got serious and said that that wouldn't be a good idea at all, that the pastor wasn't a good person to share anything that went on in their sessions with. That's another red flag. And we need to be on the lookout for those in our interactions with people who are supposed to be helping us. Now, I'm not blaming Amy for either not seeing or overlooking these because she was also getting positive interactions from this man. Predators aren't just running around looking and behaving in evil ways all the time, or they'd be easy to spot. So make sure that you know the red flags ahead of time and you're willing to see them for what they are when it's a trusted person who is showing you red flags. Not someone that you have a close personal relationship, but someone who you are in a professional relationship with. If they want to keep things secret, we need to ask ourselves why they don't want anyone else to know what is happening between us. I don't mean things that should be confidential. There is a difference between that and secrets. Secrets are not healthy most of the time. It took a lot of time before Amy's wounded self-image could admit that her feelings were valid. Those feelings of discomfort when he constantly pushed to be closer and closer in inappropriate ways. This counselor, this man who was an elder in her church, she finally realized that he was nothing more than a sexual predator. Sadly, and this breaks my heart, when she tried to tell somebody about her feelings that this therapy had gone places it shouldn't have gone, they just dismissed her concerns. They trusted a man who had this impressive title and they just weren't interested in listening to what Amy was trying to tell them. Has that ever happened to you? Or have any of us ever done that to someone else? This is a book that I recommend everybody get a copy of. Now, you may have never personally dealt with a situation like this, but I know that for me, reading this book made me feel like I'm better equipped to be able to help someone who has been or maybe still is going through something like this. And I think we all need to be equipped for that. One of my favorite parts of Amy's book is where she wrote that she had old rules she felt she had to live by. But now, because of her life experiences, she had new rules. And they're helping her heal from all that she went through. And I'm going to share one of the old rules that really grabbed my attention. Because I think a lot of people feel exactly the same way. And predators know that. And they use it against us. Amy's old rule number 14 is if someone does something that seems inappropriate, you, as a lower-ranking person, should respect them by just pretending it didn't happen. Predators count on us feeling that way. And it was so great to read Amy's new rules. 
And I'll just share new rule number one with you to get the rest. Like I said, you've got to get the book and I really, really encourage you to. So new rule number one, you deserve to be free from the bondage of secrecy, even if the truth is challenging for others to hear and accept. We've got to embrace that in our lives and we have to embrace that in our churches, in our schools, anywhere where predators use their titles to earn enough trust to be able to hurt and abuse others. That's why I'm developing some training to help churches recognize where they may have some safety blind spots. If you're interested in this information for yourself or for your church, please email me at Lori, that's L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com. Or you can message me on social media. You can find me at Facebook at The Unlovely Truth or Instagram at The Unlovely Truth Podcast. We all want to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities safer. And to do that, we need to work together. So now I want us all to hear what today's guest has to say about what she went through and why there's hope. Amy, I really want to thank you for joining us today because it takes a lot of courage to share something as personal as what you've shared in your book. It does. And I thank you so much for having me because I desperately want this word to be out for other victims. Did you always know that this was going to be something that you would share one day or did that come later? No. In fact, the irony was when it happened to me, I thought, number one, I was the only person on the planet to ever be taken advantage of by a therapist, no less. And two, I wasn't going to tell a soul, no one, not my spouse, you know, nobody. Problem was I couldn't get out without reaching out for help. I thought, well, I'll reach out and I'll get help and I'll leave. And that's as far as it will go. And just so as time went on, I wrote everything down for various people, the attorneys, the investigator for the medical board. And I think God really prompted me to write the book. However, I originally wrote it for myself. I wrote the book because I couldn't forgive myself without understanding what happened. I didn't understand if an adult could be taken advantage of. I knew that I was, but I didn't know if I could give myself that permission. And it was like, I had so much self-hatred and shame about what I, not necessarily what I did, but what I allowed, you know, or how long I stayed, why I couldn't leave sooner. And so I I was going to write out my story so that I could see it. And really seeing it on paper helped me to understand the sneaky manipulation process that was going on in the background. And then I feel like the Holy Spirit kind of prompted me, you know, other adult victims need to know that they're not alone, need to know that they don't have to take this to their grave and just let shame just fester. But it it took a period of years. That's how the journey went. I know so many people are going to benefit from your experience, how you processed it. And like you said, just knowing there are other people out there and that it isn't the victim's fault. Because you see over and over so many situations where abusers are just cloaked in this, this undeserved trust simply because of the title they hold, the position they hold in the community or in the church. How can we all be better at deciding who we can trust and people we should just say, hey, wait a minute, you seem a bit off. I don't have to give you my trust right away. Yeah, that's a big one. I think that most of us have a gut feeling or an intuition about people, maybe an energy that we sense. 
but we don't feel that we're allowed to act on that. Just from my upbringing and the person that I was, I had very low self-esteem. And so I saw red flags and I saw things that were a little concerning, but I thought, who am I to judge this person? Who am I even to have an opinion that's different from other people's? And this was a, a leader, a church leader, an elder, a doctor, a therapist. And so I think it's giving ourselves permission to trust our gut, even if nobody else sees it. Nobody else has to see it. Isolation is a key component in abuse. Abusers will try to isolate you when you feel your world getting smaller and smaller and one relationship becoming more and more prominent. That's kind of a dangerous, slippery slope. And so the other thing I would say is before it's too late, reach out, but not only reach out and just share with somebody else what's going on. Maybe you're not sure if it's bad or if it's, you know, maybe you're not sure what's going on. It feels a little weird. It feels a little off. Reach out. But here's usually what happens. A victim will reach out. They'll finally get the courage and they'll reach out to somebody who's unhealthy. I mean, they don't realize that, but maybe less healthy than they even are. Maybe somebody else who has abuse in their background and they minimize what you share. So you go back and, you know, that kind of happened to me. You've got to keep telling until someone hears you. And that's really hard to do because you already feel a little bit unsure and nervous to share. And then you share and get shut down and you usually don't go back for more. So I'd like to tell people you tell until you're heard. What a great point to bring up. I think that is so, so important. And something else you said about trusting your gut, trusting that intuition. I think that sometimes we overlook the fact that that could be the Holy Spirit giving us that little check to say, this is not healthy for you. This is not of God. This is not of me. This is not something you should be around. So we do have to, to trust ourselves a little bit more. You're exactly right. I'd never thought of that, but a lot of that gut instinct probably is the Holy Spirit. And this is a big question, so you might not be able to answer fully or get real super in-depth here, and that's okay. But how were you able to still trust God after what this man did, supposedly in the name of God? Yes, and I get that a lot. I had lived most of my life, I don't want to say apart from God, but angry with God and very bitter. It was a very dark, lonely place to be. In my early 40s, right before I started therapy with this abuser, I went through a celebrate recovery process and I kind of found Jesus for the first time and my faith kind of came alive for me for the first time. And so I was a very passionate, naive believer, which was one of the reasons I will say that I was tripped up by this Christian leader because I was in this state of, of kind of awe. But to answer your question, I refused to let this evil man take anything more from me than he had already taken. He almost took my life. He almost destroyed my family. My children suffered. He wasn't going to take my faith. And it was a decision I had to make. It was not an emotional feeling. It was an intellectual decision, you know, that I made that I would not give that to him. I just would not go down that road. And I did not want to return to that life that I had been leaving. And I feel like so many of us, you know, when we're really hurt in this kind of way, we retreat, which just hurts us further. I just wasn't going to do that. And so I really feel like if God hadn't shown up for me in such a powerful way right before this happened, I don't know that I would have had the faith to get through it. Mm -hmm. But I did. And I never saw God's hand in the evil. I was able to sense him trying to lead me to safety. I knew that he was, or I should say I was aware of him trying to help me. And it was me who was pushing him away and saying, oh, no, no, God, 
no, he's not trying to hurt me like it's good. Or when I knew it was bad, well, I'll fix it. Just give me a little more time and I'll fix it. So I can always sense that he was trying to throw me a lifeline. So I did not feel, you know, that he had turned his back on me. What has been harder is my trust in church and my trust in pastors and my trust in Christians in general. Not that I'm, you know, bitter, suspicious person. I, I will never let myself return to that. It was the people in the church that I turned to that I had a relationship with that hurt me the most in this abusive process. I knew the abuser was a sociopath. When I healed from that, I was, I was done with that. You know, the pastor's wife, who had been my close friend and mentor, when she wasn't there for me in this process, that was harder to forgive, harder to get over. So I, I feel like there's a lot of victims because I've spoken to them that, well, some of them just can't do God anymore, period. But a lot of us love Jesus, but we don't know, we can't step foot in a church again. And so, you know, maybe with awareness of this, there's a way to make churches more comfortable for us to return or a way that we don't have to feel like you kind of feel like a black sheep because the victims are just kind of shoved aside and they leave and nobody has to deal with us. We should be able to reintegrate to our church and be supported by our church where the abuse happened if it wasn't a church. I think you're completely right. I think, you know, the church used to have this moral authority and people look to the church for guidance, for truth, for comfort, for safety. And we've we've not provided that well enough anymore for people to turn to us when they need us because they've had experiences like you've had. We've been selfish. We haven't loved on people. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast to share your experience because we really need those of us in the church that are actively attending, actively serving, being leaders, whatever. We need to take a hard look at ourselves and say, okay, there's some good stuff that we're doing, but what are we not doing that we should be doing that is keeping people from the fullest relationship with God that he intended for them to have? Right, because, you know, the church is literally the witness, you know, supposedly acting as a witness for Jesus. And so when you're not accepted there and when you're hurt there, it is really hard to go back. When I first escaped the abuser, and it was just like the week after, and I was just in survival mode, I was in so much pain that I didn't really think I could survive it. I didn't think I could even live through the pain. I didn't trust anyone at that point. I had no one at that point. I didn't want to tell anyone what happened. So God was the only person that I had. He was the only person that I felt I could trust and that I could cling to. So it was really, you know, it wasn't just that I had this amazing, amazing faith either. It was that I was clinging to him like a lifeline, clinging to him just to keep me moving forward to do the next thing. You know, how do I tell my husband? How do I through each step? So I just wanted to throw that in there because it's a desperation thing sometimes. And that's okay. Let's talk about that a little more. For the person out there who's listening, who is maybe still entangled in an abusive situation like this with either a therapist or a church leader, whatever it happens to be, what would you say to them that you wish someone had said to you? I would say that it is impossible to give consent in any relationship where there's an imbalance of power. It doesn't matter your age. If it is a boss client, teacher, student, therapist, client, pastor, congregant, you cannot say yes in that situation because you cannot say yes if you cannot also say no. And you do not have permission to say no, usually, to people that are in a position of power over you. 
For some victims, they could lose their job or be kicked out of their community, their church. So there's no consent. I also wish that I had known that I wasn't alone because I thought I had to be the only adult, you know, that could fall for such a thing that could be manipulated in such a way that I was so naive or so needy, so pathetic in some way. I wish I had known earlier on. This happens all the time in so many settings to educated, intelligent, successful women. And psychopaths are good at what they do. And most of them have practiced for a very long time. He had done this for years and he knew what worked, what didn't. And as he got to know people, he realized certain things work better with certain personality types than with others. I always want to tell victims to to give themselves a break, to not hold themselves to such a high standard. We would never tell somebody who had their house broken into, well, did you have the absolute latest security stuff going on? Did you do this perfectly? Did you do that perfectly? We just simply wouldn't do that. But in situations where someone's been abused, taken advantage of, Somehow we feel like they didn't do enough to prevent what happened to them. We forget that someone chose them knowing that the techniques they'd perfected would work on that person more than likely. Yes. And I feel like in society, we respect victims who, you know, they're attacked by a stranger in a park. They're sexually assaulted, you know, in these kind of random acts of violence. But so much abuse happens in a relationship where they've taken time to manipulate and groom their victims and, you know, kind of methodically woven this web around the victim until they're trapped. And then they take advantage of them. And when the victim tells, that isn't respected. Oh, study after study bears that out. You are so spot on with that. We are much more likely to be taken advantage of by someone we know than we are by that random stranger. And don't you agree it isn't as respected? I completely agree. We put the burden on victims to have done a better job proactively protecting themselves from a danger they might not have even known was there. We simply never do that in other types of crimes. Exactly. And I'll tell you one of the most healing things that I heard in my entire experience was a psychologist up in Boston who is often an expert witness psychologist in these court cases. And he said, Amy, have you shared with your husband everything that happened. And I said, yes, I told him everything. And he said, well, that's a shame because the first thing I do in these scenarios when I sit down with couples is I tell the spouse, your wife was a victim of a crime and victims do not owe explanations for the crimes committed against them. It was the most freeing thing I had ever heard. Still to this day, it kind of makes me cry because what happened to me, everyone around us, you know, everyone in society blames me or at least wants to know how it happened before they're willing to admit that that I was taken advantage of. And the thing is, early on in my recovery, I did a lot of defending and explaining. I walk into a room and I felt like everybody needed to know all the details or they're judging me. And I had to get to a place where I was like, number one, I don't care. Number two, I know I was a victim and God knows I was a victim. And that's really all that matters. And whether people are going to decide to look at it that way or not is more about fear of their own world being shaken than it is about me. I had a wise person, you know, tell me that victims are blamed because it's much too frightening a world if all of us can be duped by our pastors, our therapists, the people that are supposed to care about us and protect us and nurture us. That's pretty scary a thought. And the reality is they are out there and it is scary, but we don't really want to feel that way. So we lump the victims into a category of broken people 
or naive people or weak people or, you know, whatever it is, as long as then that keeps us safe from that threat. And we don't have to walk around worrying that it can happen to us. And that helped me a lot to let that go and realize that's other people's discomfort. It's not, it's not about me. Agreed. And on the flip side of that, I would say that's exactly why we all need to be having these discussions. That's why we all need to understand what's going on because together is how we keep people safer. So I think that's a great jumping off point to ask you that if we're looking around and we're trying to look out for people in our circle, our friends, our loved ones, people that we go to church with, neighbors, whoever it is, If we suspect that maybe something's going on, they might be being abused by someone who's pretending to be helping them. What can we look for to be able to say, this is someone I need to reach out to and just say, hey, I'm a safe person. If you ever need to talk, you can talk to me. One red flag that I think of right away is if you have, you know, a friend that's sharing things with you, say, we'll just say it's a therapist that they're going to, and the sharing becomes less and less frequent more and more secrets kept, meaning just less information. They're more vague. They don't really have as much to say. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's a red flag, but it it will happen in an abusive situation. The loyalty towards the abuser will grow and the distance between the victim and the loved ones in their life will grow farther apart. For example, my sessions started at an hour and then they morphed into two hours. Well, at first I thought that was scary, but then I thought, well, no, it's great. I need the two hours and, and I like that he likes working with me for two hours. But I wasn't really excited to tell my close friend that. So I kind of skirted around that issue. I really think that isolation is a big one, starting to pull away from significant relationships, maybe being more defensive about the abusive relationship that they are in, quick to defend what's going on, kind of putting out kind of that defensive wall of, you don't understand. He's not like that. This is different. And that is exactly what causes that divide to grow bigger. And that's when, you know, the loved ones, you know, need to push a little harder instead of just, okay, you know, and it's not to say that you can make a victim leave, but maybe just don't be so quick to walk away from it. That's great advice. And I've had occasion where I've had to to tell people tough things that I see that they're maybe not seeing, or like you said, overlooking, minimizing. And I think it's important to let the person know, I'm sharing these things because I love you. I'm sharing you because I care for you. I'm sharing because I don't want you to be hurt. I'm not trying to be the one that that hurts you by saying these things. Yeah, that's huge because, see, if I had heard that, I feel like I would have been more open to say a little more. Maybe I was a little worried, too, about the appointments being longer. Making it more of an open dialogue, you know, will keep the discussion going longer and maybe get the victim to share more. But I felt immediate judgment and kind of like an eye roll at like, it's two hours. That made me feel embarrassed and ashamed. So I kind of quickly walked away from that. But if somebody had just sort of got me to talk about it and do they usually, you know, sleep for two hours and did that make you feel uncomfortable at first? And, or was, you know, it might have helped me to talk more and helped me to, to be more honest about what was going on. Because as soon as you feel judgment, you, like you said, you minimize it, you downplay it. You never mention it again. It's pushing, but in an open, non-judgmental way. Just try to get them to talk. Try to get them to engage with you. Don't question it. If inside you're screaming, you know, your head in your head, it's you're screaming. That's crazy. Like, oh my gosh! If you come at a victim that way, they're going to immediately retreat because 
either they're already feeling a little awkward about it, or they don't want to lose the connection that they have because an abuser won't, they will make sure that, that the victim is so connected to them that they're not going to be able to leave when they make a big move. So when somebody comes at us in a threatening way, we want to protect that connection that we have. And we're afraid they're, they're saying we have to leave. But if they're just talking with us and trying to understand more, it, it would maybe in a non-threatening way help victims to process it, you know, in a way that would be beneficial. That is such great information. And your book is full of things that I think can really, really help people understand the dynamic a little bit better between an abuser and someone that's being taken advantage of. And that way you can speak to someone with more sympathy, more empathy, more compassion. So there's a link in the show notes um, to get your own copy of the book because I really, really do recommend that anybody who thinks they might be in a situation like this or they might know someone in a similar situation, get this book, understand the dynamic a little better, and then try to start a conversation. So there's a link to your website as well if you need a speaker, an advocate. She's all kinds of things. And where else can people connect with you? My website is probably the best. Thank you so much for coming again, sharing such personal information. You're so brave to do that. And it's just, it's such a service to people. I don't think you can imagine how many people's lives you'll be impacting when they hear your story. Thank you. And it means the world to me when I do hear from a victim and they say, oh my gosh, that is exactly what happened to me. I didn't have any words for it. And that's exactly what happened. Just to know you're not alone. That is probably one of the first steps towards healing in this process. Well, thank you again. And again, everybody look in the show notes, grab a copy of the book, check out Amy's website, reach out to her and connect because that is what is going to make these situations better is when we work together. Thank you again, Amy. Thank you. Our Bible passage for today, I think, is just spot on. And it's from Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. And I'm reading right now from the Amplified Bible. No one lights a lamp and then covers it with a container to hide it or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For there's nothing hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come out into the open. So be careful how you listen. For whoever has a teachable heart, to him more understanding will be given. And whoever does not have a longing for truth, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. There's a lot going on in this short parable. Jesus dives right in with giving us what the purpose of a lamp is to give light to people. And what does light do? It drives away the darkness. How can we expect people to want to hear the gospel when it comes out that we're hiding and excusing sin in our lives or in our churches? The news is full of stories that involve trusted members of a faith community who are abusing others in secret. So why are we shocked when the world does not trust us? And believe me, I've read lots of surveys where they just don't anymore. They call us hypocrites. We need to make our churches safe for the people in our congregations, but also for the people who have been hurt by the church, and they just aren't sure where else they can find a safe refuge. That's just part of what author Amy Nordhues shared with us for today. And I hope you'll take something that you've learned here and help your church become a light in the darkness in your community. 
If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. I've put a link in the show notes for you for that. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact. When you share this episode, it's just got so much great information that someone you know might just really need help with. And if you would, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give me a five-star rating and a nice review so that more people will discover what we're talking about here. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.